0: The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon
1: and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's, it's time now for Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm with our host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Farsberg, and Philip's on the line with us, and, uh, Philip, how you doing today?
0: I'm well. I'm well, David. Good. I hope you're the
1: same. I'm, tr- I'm trying to be. I tell you what, uh, everybody needs to stay hydrated. Uh, it is. These temperatures that we've been having, uh, will take it out of you, and you don't even know that it's being taken out of you. So, everybody, please drink lots of fluid and stay hydrated. I never heard about uh, Netanyahu. Uh, <clears throat> he was taken to the hospital yesterday, and I don't know if uh, if uh, how he's doing, and uh, they said that he was dehydrated, but... Uh, you know that's something that the military <clears throat> works on continually is keeping the troops hydrated. <clears throat> and they realize that that uh, you know dehydration can take down a whole group of people and a whole company, a whole battalion. So they make sure that uh, everybody's hydrated. Anyway, and I'm sure you did the same thing with your troops, didn't you, Phil? Yes, sir. You kept pouring water down them, and Thank you. make sure you have a full canteen. Or, I guess by by your time, it was a full uh, plastic bottle, right?
0: We did carry plastic bottles. Pardon me. In fact. You did. We did have plastic bottles that we were required to have with us, but uh, David, are are we skipping our our prayer and our Jody?
1: No, we're not. We're going to do that right now. First thing is our prayer that we do, and then uh, we'll come back with uh, something to make sure your heart's pumping. We'll be back right after this. Mm-hmm. Sure, your heart is up and pumping and going.
0: Mama and Papa were laid in bed. Mama rolled over, this is what she said. Mama rolled over, this is what she said. I give myself, I give myself, I give myself, I give myself. some. P-T. PT, 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 good for you, good for you, or good for me, or good for me. Ooh.
1: And we did do a lot of running. Now, Phil, you were always at the head of your uh, men, right?
0: Our requirement. You know, leaders are out front. And, uh, you know, one of the things about it is you you can't drop out. You can't drop out of a run when you're a leader. Um, And uh, they really to instill that in you um, and I recall when I went through um, airborne training at Fort Benning um, the, the uh, uh, they, they organized this into uh, plane loads um, and I was the 11th plane load commander I remember and um, that was because I was a second lieutenant there at Butter Bar and um, they insisted that uh, the leaders be the first one out of the plane. So uh, I was the first one out of my plane, and there was uh, really there was no way that I could have uh, <laughs> any second thoughts. I couldn't hesitate at all because yeah, I had all all the men behind me uh, watching me. They had never jumped before, nor had I, but they watched me, and every one of them came out the door after me.
1: Well, that's what leaders are for. Follow me.
0: Yeah, I heard that more than once or twice in Fort Benning.
1: <laughs> I tell you what, you, you spent some time down at one of my favorite forts, Fort Hood, didn't you?
0: I did spend uh just a mere seven years at Fort Hood.
1: Well, how did you like those runs on some of those dirt? Dirt paved roads, or I should say, dust paved roads.
0: Yeah, I think they told them told us they were gravel, but uh, they were pretty much dust. Um, you know, tanks will turn turn uh, gravel into dust, so won't they? <laughs>
1: I tell you, that was for me. That was the hardest running I I ever did was when. You know, your platoon's kicking up more dust, and you're inhaling it, and uh, you just can't get, there's no way that you can get a clean breath of air. Am I right?
0: Yeah, uh, you got to clean out your filters after that. But uh, I do recall about the, the dust at Fort Hood. Um, it was especially useful for uh, me as a Cobra pilot, because uh, you know we'd be looking for tanks and uh, if they were uh, if they were moving down one of those uh, gravel roads uh, they'd be kicking up uh, a plume that we could see for miles. Oh so, I bet uh, that was our uh, that was our cue to go get them
1: <laughs> and after you got them what'd you do with them?
0: Well we just you know, pretended we were engaging
1: them. Oh. By, the
0: time, uh, by the time I went to combat I wasn't flying wasn't flying uh, Cobras anymore. I had moved on to uh, more of your military intelligence uh, related aircraft.
1: Well it had to be fun flying the Cobra and uh, engaging I guess is as good a word as any.
0: I don't know doubt uh it was a great deal of fun to fly the Cobra um the problem with being a Cobra pilot in peacetime is uh you don't get to fly very much because um nobody nobody asks asks for you to come support them um if you if you fly a uh a Chinook people will call you all the time to come uh come fly for you for them you know uh,
1: when they when they they want want to move a whole platoon
0: right or if you're flying a a black hawk or or a huey even back then uh people would call for you you know ask for your support but uh flying a uh, cobra you know there nothing's going to really get blown up there in peacetime except when you go to the range um And, uh, so nobody's really seeking your assistance. Uh, and, you know, it's an expensive machine to fly, and, and it's, uh, you know, the ammunition is, uh, expensive and limited in peacetime. Now, on the other hand, if you should be lucky enough to be flying, uh, gunships when you get to, uh, combat, uh, then, uh, then you're going to be flying a great deal because, uh, as we experienced, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, we did not allow any convoys of helicopters to go anywhere in that country, in those countries without a gunship escort. So, uh, the guns were very, very busy in in those conflicts. And, uh, you know, they come back to the peacetime army, and, uh, well, uh, they're going to be sitting on their hands quite a bit.
1: That is a, uh, the Cobra is a fighting machine, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, I, I was select for, uh, for flight school, uh, before I went to infantry school, and, uh, you know, some of my uh, classmates in the infantry were, you know, chiding me that I was not as manly as they are because I was going off to flight school. But I do recall, you know, their, their big forte in the infantry was uh, to move, shoot, and communicate. And uh, uh, once I got my Cobra, um, well, I discovered that I had basically more mobility, more firepower, and more communications capability than probably an infantry battalion. And I was still at that time a 1st Lieutenant. <laughs>
1: you know, it's like the question that I ask. Uh, do you know a, a veteran that can tell only one story? Well, by the same token, can you think of any time that and, and I guess this is what really <laughs> makes us different and makes us um, a cohesive combat fighting organization, and that's the ability. Everybody's always razzing somebody about something that you're not as good as or, uh, you know, you went to the air instead of... Staying where the real men fight on the ground, and you know, and but that that's that's part of our military, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, you know, it it, uh, it kind of stirs up an esprit de corps that the, the uh, is, it is useful uh, in leading men. Uh, kind of gives them their their own identity. Or their self worth in, in that, um, but as you've heard me say many, many times, David, you know my real heroes in uh, in Desert Storm were the were the planners and the logisticians.
1: I'm sorry, um, were the were the what?
0: The planners oh, and the logisticians.
1: Oh yeah. Boy, if you didn't, uh, if you don't have the, uh, and and this is something that's. <laughs> Worrying us today is uh, Mr. Uh, Biden's announcement uh, that we don't have ammunition. Th- that up uh, that that goes up there with some of his dumbest remarks. <clears throat> but logistics and um, having what the troops need. And that, like you said, that's that's so important, and many times overlooked by particularly civilians. They don't appreciate the fact that, um, you know, the the person out in the field one, they have to have food; two, they have to have ammunition; three, they have to have information, or they can't fight. They might as well be a, a bush out there.
0: Yeah, you know, um, logistics is is having what you need, uh, but planning means you are going to have what you need, where you need it, when you need it, and uh, you know the our military does not run on excuses, so uh, we uh, you know you. Well, what they told us that uh, at Fort Benning they were being a, giving us the maximum effective range of every weapon system we were learning, but the, they did tell us the maximum effective range of an excuse is zero meters, uh, and that uh, that's something that sort of stuck with me. And yet, when you run into uh, folks in, in the civilian world. They figure, well, yeah, as, long, as long as I have an excuse, I'm good. Uh,
1: but uh, we didn't run on an excuse. Well, you know, there's, and and I think you'd back me up on this, there's um, what you need going into a known situation and then the backup support of what you need when you've gotten in a situation that you weren't expecting. And I, I think our military is extremely good on that and, and they, they do a heck of a job when, when the firefight breaks out or whatever the situation might be and instead of a company, it's a battalion and you need that extra support, be it artillery or be it, uh, Cobras, be it whatever the situation is. I think we can react as well, if not better, than any other force in the uni- in the world. As a matter of fact, and there's well, you
0: know, at one time um, I was the uh, logistician for the uh, the Army's first uh, Apache squadron, and uh, you know, my motto is. You know, when, when you're ordering things, order more than you need and order it before you need it. And you better anticipate because the maximum effective range of an excuse is zero meters. So we, um, we were always, you know, kind of front loading everything. And, um, and, you know, <laughs> our, our armed forces are not especially cost efficient. Uh, there, you know, there's necessarily, you know, overspending, uh, but primarily because the, the cost of failure is just too great. Well, you know,
1: I guess again, we're probably one of the only countries that says the loss of one life because we didn't have the equipment or we didn't have the supplies necessary isn't, isn't accepted. Because we have it, we just gotta get it to them. And, uh, I think we do the best job in the world. Uh, you've seen other worldly, well, you know, it's like, Saddam Hussein, with all of his <laughs> thought of, or he thought he was preparing, he prepared to take on the Boy Scouts, not on the not take on the U.S. Army.
0: Well, uh, and of course, it wasn't just the U.S. Army; we had a little bit of help from the Air Force, Marines, Navy, Coast Guard. I mean, you know, it's a it's one big team, but um, uh, yeah, he had, he had purchased the whole uh, program from the Soviet Union, so he had their their finest equipment. And um, anyway, it didn't work out all that well for him. Uh, you know, when you care enough to send the very best, that's when you send your. U.S.
1: troops. Phil, can you, can you tell me? And I'm I'm assuming I'm not or guessing that you're in such situations, but you mentioned a couple of other branches that we have. Uh, and being in the army, uh, there's another group that they think they play football called the Navy, and um, in the Air Force. They can't get enough guys to play a football game. But anyway, as you were, as you were in a combat situation, how big a smile came on your face as you heard one of the, as you heard from one of the naval carriers or destroyers and uh, heard that shell going overhead?
0: I never did have um I was trained uh in uh, uh, something called the joint firepower controllers course, uh where I could, you know, uh call for things like naval gunfire and such. But I never did have the opportunity to avail myself of naval gunfire. Usually um uh, If you're you're Army and you find yourself in a situation where they're dedicating uh, naval gunfire assets to you, it's probably a a very bad situation. Um, But, uh, you know, those guys were great. And, you know, I had uh, an opportunity uh, to tour the USS Iowa, which is um, in uh, the uh, Port of Los Angeles. I guess San Pedro, uh, California. And uh, uh, what a magnificent uh, aircraft uh, carrier, battleship that was. Uh, I think there were four, uh, I think they were Iowa class. There was the Iowa, the Missouri, uh, the Wisconsin, and the New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken, were the four in those. uh, And I'm probably. Insulting um, some of my Navy friends uh, by what I'm saying, uh, getting it wrong or making things up, but um, you know they had 16-inch uh, guns, uh, and they still have 16-inch guns on the uh, on the Iowa. Um, uh, there was a fellow that uh, became a friend of mine because he. He read uh, my father's war diary that I had published online. Uh, my dad served in World War II in the Navy, and uh, turns out his father was uh, was on the same ship as uh, my dad, and we became friends. When I got out to uh, uh, San Pedro, I had a chance to meet him, and uh, I learned. He gave me the, you know, the best tour you could get I guess on the uh, on the Iowa and uh, he told me that the Iowa is actually you know they're they're required to keep that he's part of the crew that maintains it it's it's a museum ship right now but they are required to keep it available uh, if it needs to be recommissioned Uh, you know you never need 16 inch naval gunfire until you need it really bad. <laughs> so, uh, they, they keep the, this thing sort of at the strategic, uh, capability. But now, by the time it was, uh, and, it, and I think those, some of those, uh, battleships were, uh, engaged during, uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Well, that would have been Desert Storm. <clears throat> but, uh, they're they all retrofitted from their original uh, World War II uh, mission to where they were, uh, in addition to their 16-inch guns, they had uh, uh, missile launchers for your uh, cruise, guided cruise missiles. And, uh, so they're very, very lethal uh, weapons. And uh, glad we have it. I'm glad Saddam didn't have
1: anything like that. And uh, I assume they're diesel.
0: Uh, they are not nuclear powered, so I guess they're, you know, propelled by some form of petroleum or petroleum byproduct.
1: Hmm. That brings up, or brings up in my evil mind. Uh, the supply, if they were to be recommissioned, I assume the Navy knows a little bit more about it than I do. But uh, the ability to supply them with fuel would, to me, would be a question.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I, could they be retrofitted or? Uh with a, a nuclear reactor for propulsion I think that would be an enormous undertaking but um, but yeah and of course this, this is the reason why our strategic petroleum reserves are so important they're not they're not to be used uh, for political gain or uh, other nonsense of that sort our strategic petroleum reserves are for uh, strategic needs. You know... In my humble opinion.
1: Yes, sir, I understand. They, uh, They're talking about logistics and, you know, whether in war or during peacetime, it's still... A gigantic jigsaw puzzle, and trying to fit all the pieces together. And then, when it is wartime, you have to act that even that much faster, trying to get all the pieces to fit together. But it's, um, I, you know, it's it's easy to be critical of folks in some positions. And yet, if they're the uh, if they're the ones that are trying to fit all the pieces together, then they've got one heck of a responsibility and one big job. And uh, I don't know that one. Well, in fact, I do know one man can't address all issues. And you know, it might be a log in the creek, but. It's still a log in the creek and you have to do something about it. And, uh, it just, y- you look at, at everything from that cook in the, in the kitchen to, uh, you know, how, well, let me ask, how could we run out of ammunition the most popular weapon in the world, the M16.
0: Well, uh, I think we might be shipping it to somebody else um, who's using it at a very high rate these days. Um, so I don't, I don't know for sure, uh, but it, it appears to me that uh, we're sort of overstepping. I mean. It's one thing to provide assistance for another nation, but uh, it it mustn't be at the expense of our own readiness.
1: You know, you never heard of any Indians saying we're out of arrows.
0: Perhaps. Um, That's a little before my time.
1: (laughs) But you don't go to... Not much. (laughs) You don't go to... A news conference and say we're out of ammunition. That's like telegraphing the world that you're out of arrows. And I just I couldn't believe it. But then again, considering the source, um, I guess I would believe anything. But that's that's a, a serious thing to you know. well, we're as long as we're out of ammunition for the M-16, might as well tell you we're out of rockets, too.
0: Well, I do recall... Uh, this is not Desert Shield Desert Storm, but this is uh, the uh, scrape we got into in Iraq uh, afterward, uh, early 2000. I do recall that uh, we... Realized that we needed to change the way we were doing things with, as regards our um, our armored or uh, our Humvee, um, which is the uh, basically the, the replacement for the Jeep, um, that they were susceptible to uh, ambush and uh, IED and uh, they were not designed to fight against uh, those kind of threats and um, so that of course the contractor builds them to whatever requirements are um, established by the Department of Defense but uh, I recall the Secretary of Defense at the time when he was coming under fire from the press about not having what they call up-armored Humvees and he basically stated the obvious when he said that we go to war with the army we have at the time and um, they they absolutely savaged him for for that comment as if he was trying if he were saying he didn't care or whatever it was not the point of course the point was we don't we don't get to choose, you know, when and where we're needed. We we prepare best we can, and we find a shortfall in our capabilities, and we uh, we work diligently to plug those needs. Um, and uh, but you know, the press being what they are, they they savaged him, and, uh, made his uh, name a byword. I think he did. Think he was uh, pretty good at what he did, and <clears throat> as Donald Rumsfeld, by the way.
1: Right. Um, this this will pull back on your marvelous history, and and being a historian that you are, but. I don't know if this is a fair statement or not. I think it is. But we have, in in all of our engagements, or not, I can't say in all, but in most of in our engagements throughout the history of the United States, even going back to the Revolutionary War, we have fought in my opinion a gentleman's war of sorts if you can if you can call war a gentleman's endeavor but um, we have <clears throat> we have always you know it's sort of uh, like the difference between the fighter that has a horseshoe in his glove with him and the fighter that doesn't and we've always fought our our battles thinking that, well, the enemy is, or they should be, as gentlemanly as we are, and then we run into an IED or uh, Poppin' Johnny's in Vietnam, and, you know, and we're not, we're not, I don't want to say prepared, but we just—how could anybody do? And we, you know, this was the first time, particularly in Vietnam, was that we ran into situations. I can't address World War II in Japan because I understand Japan was about as brutal as as the Viet Cong. But we think everybody is going to bow and and be gentlemen's on the field of battle and you know when you start skinning people that that turns it into a whole different situation so am I right or wrong in, in saying that the U.S. has always taken the, the gentleman's approach to it whereas we had to stop and take a look at the way our enemies were fighting?
0: Well, I'm not 100% certain that uh, all of our former adversaries would uh, agree that our uh, methods of fighting were always gentlemanly. uh, And according to Hoyle, um, we you know, our whole uh, country began when um, the British Army uh, was sent to disarm the militia at uh, the armories at Lexington and Concord, and uh, the, uh, the militia mustered you know, on the plane, basically, to, uh, to repel the British, and uh, somebody started firing, and we took several casualties. Um, but, uh, what happened after that was, uh, the, the British had to make their way back to, uh, to Boston and during their ret- retreat to Boston, we, uh, we exacted a huge number of casualties from them, uh, and... <clears throat> What was thought unthinkable in that day was our uh, our marksmen were targeting officers, and uh, that was supposedly not uh, not gentlemanly at the time. Uh, and our uh, our militias, uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony militia, fought from you know behind stone walls and uh, in, in the trees, and uh, essentially. Uh, Played havoc on the British Army. Uh, They were um, accustomed to what was sort of uh, that 18th and 19th century sort of, uh, I think they call it Napoleonic warfare, though this uh, sort of predates Napoleon, Uh, but where you form up and uh, basically pummel each other at close distance rather than uh taking advantage of uh of cover and concealment and uh, that that sort of thing so um you know the uh i recently uh as recently as february traveled to vietnam one of the places i went in vietnam was uh, uh gucci which is uh down in the south uh, not too far from Saigon uh, and uh, they were proud to show us their uh, uh, the tunnels of Gucci where they had uh, fought <coughs> the American invaders um, to in their uh, parlance uh, they fought the Americans uh, basically with the uh, little resources and you know just make taking advantage of uh, of uh, ambushes booby traps that sort of thing Um, you know in warfare it's very important uh, to uh, keep control of uh, the the methods that are being used uh, in combat because um, what can happen is you can you can wind up with a uh, an acceleration of things beyond what's controllable and you wind up with what's known as uh, retaliations and reprisals and uh, uh, so if everybody's going to one up each other um, <clears throat> it can get real messy real real bad real fast and you uh, you know, of course, we had um, you know an example of that is the uh, is what happened in uh, Milai uh, with uh, with Lieutenant Calley, um, and uh, you know that that's not honorable either. So there's there's a balance that you need to maintain, uh, and that things got out of hand when I received my training in uh, uh, Army ROTC uh, they were very you know this was uh, not many years after less than maybe 10 years after uh, what had happened in their lives so uh, it was sort of fresh in uh, memories of folks and they uh, they were pretty intent to make sure we uh, had the resources to Uh, prevent that from happening again. Is that that long enough way around the barn? (laughs)
1: You know, the the bottom line of it is, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the bottom line is, it's one thing to be sitting here talking to each other and knowing that we're not going to be shot at and it's a whole different thing to have a bullet go whizzing by your head. <coughs> and um, you know, we judge, we judge a situation under the conditions of almost civilian life, and it's it's a total different story when somebody's shooting at
0: you. Uh, I'll agree with that. Uh, I would say probably uh, one of the greatest uh, films that's ever been made that uh, kind of uh, amplifies that uh, is uh, one called Breaker Morant. Uh, and I highly recommend it to, your, to listeners of this show To uh, get a copy of uh, Breaker Morant. I think you can stream it for free on Netflix. Um, It's made in 1979, and uh, it's actually an Australian film. Uh, And it's about, uh, it's a true story with some uh, license taken. Um, But uh, it's about. uh, Soldiers uh, from Australia serving under British command uh, during the Boer War in, uh, in uh, the turn of the century, around 1900. Um, and uh, it really uh, outlines for people the, uh, the hazards of uh, this kind of warfare... Uh, and what it what it can turn into if you uh, if you don't keep control of
1: it. you know this is uh, I, I've as best I can been trying to um, keep track of the situation with the marine in New York and you know, You're trained, you're trained to do a job, you're trained to react, and I don't think there was, with Penny, I don't think there was one ounce of intent. I just think that he got placed in a bad situation and, you know, That's the end of the story. And uh, he didn't start it. Uh, the other guy started it. And, you know, Penny just put an end to it. And that's what he was trained to do. And, you know, the well, let me ask you this. In your training, and I know in mine as far as infantry goes, uh, I don't think... There are many situations, there are some, I understand, but I don't think there are many situations that, uh, have a reserve, have a reverse to the command of charge. And when you've been given the command to charge or do whatever, you're, you're putting your full soul and heart into it, and it's hard at, on an instant to turn the Titanic around.
0: yeah you, know, uh, you know there's a, a lot of adrenaline goes into a situation like that and uh, fight or flight. Um, so I <clears throat> I understand uh, to some degree what uh, was going on with mr. Penny. Um. And, uh, well, I just hope things work out well for him.
1: Yeah, I do too. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, I hope he gets some military folks in the jury. Not all civilians. But...
0: Well, it's, I would guess uh, the prosecution is going to... Maneuver hard to prevent um, any uh, any combat veterans from serving on, on the jury,
1: which is unfair too. Highly unfair, in my opinion. But yeah, I don't I don't agree with much of anything attorneys do anyway. So. Um, I probably shouldn't address that issue. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it. This oh, we're we're going to be, and I want to want your opinion on this, and uh, I'll talk to you about it a little bit. But because of again, the public not knowing what. Deployment means to a family, and you say, "Oh well, Joe's being deployed. He's being sent to Afghanistan, or he's being sent to wherever." No, it's not just Joe that's being sent; it's his whole family, and our her whole family. And we're going to be doing a show on that called "Deployed," and this, this is going to take a from the notice of coming deployment, to prepping for deployment, to deployment, and then it's going to talk about when that person is deployed and what the family is going through as that person is deployed. And I think this will be one of the most interesting shows on radio today. And uh, we're looking forward to working with some folks that uh, are living through deployment right now. And uh, so that's one of the shows that we're going to be doing. And then uh, we've got some other new shows that are coming on board. And they're all addressing our military in one shape, form, or fashion. And uh, we've got some wonderful folks that are... Gonna be putting some of these shows together and, uh, then we're gonna be calling on folks like you, Phil, that been there, done that, and, uh, can address a certain issue or, you know, be a guest on one of the other shows. And you have such vital information and knowledge that, uh, I'm not sure the station could run without you.
0: Okay, uh, well, I hope that's not the case, but, uh, you know, as regards to, uh, what goes through someone's mind when they find themselves in a fight-or-flight situation, you know, you have to understand that a, you know, a a physical struggle on a subway car is one thing, but, uh, you know, what, um... what my hero William T. Sherman had to say uh, is very poignant, which is to say that the war is all hell and you cannot refine it. Um, Vietnam veterans uh, preparing us for our career in the U.S. Army um, described combat uh, in this way to us. You uh, hollow out a 55-gallon drum and hang it on a chain above you. You know, with the with the open end facing down. Stick your head in there. Um, light a smoke grenade under your feet uh, to fill, fill that barrel up with smoke, and uh, then have uh, a couple of folks with uh, axe handles uh, beating on the uh, outside of the of the drum. Um, it, it is utter chaos. And, um, you know, it it's <laughs> brings to mind what Rudyard Kipling wrote if you can keep your head when all men doubt you, if you can keep your head when all those about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, right? Um, that's, uh, you know, combat will, will test a man, and he'll, he'll either come out. Uh, as a diamond or a lump of coal
1: well you know I was just thinking as, as you were telling us that uh, and uh, Nam was in many ways such a different war from anything we had ever fought even though you'd think that Korea would be similar but it wasn't, it wasn't at all And we, and again, you're the historian, so if I stumble and make a a tactical mistake, correct me. But most of our combat had been in, it's not that we didn't have hand-to-hand combat or face-to-face combat. We had that in World War II. But... We were, we'd never been in a situation like Vietnam where the, where the situation, the, the, uh, vegetation forced closeness. And, uh, you know, it was, the vegetation played a big role in Vietnam and we we just that was something we had not ever really seen, and we had to adjust our training in the late '60s to you know we'd been used to uh, being able to throw our tanks in or do whatever and go on, on to ground that was basically wide open. And we had never had vegetation stop our tanks until we hit Vietnam.
0: <clears throat> it was a well. Um, the tankers will tell you that they don't. Uh, they don't want to be. Uh, they they would like to fight if they could choose where they're going to fight. They want to fight uh, on an open plain, sort of like we had in Desert Storm. Um, they don't want to get in a city or uh, channeled uh, with uh, with their avenues of approaches, funneling them down one lane or, you know, giving, uh, like being in a forest or something, gives uh, the advantage to the infantry because they can use their anti-tank weapons uh, in ambush fashion. But, you know, Desert Storm, of course, was the last time that we had a, a true force-on-force engagement. And by, by that, what I mean is, you know, a little bit like your, uh... like your, uh... uh the Napoleonic warfare, but, uh, you know, a lot more fast-moving. Uh, Blitzkrieg kind of thing. The folks who, uh the folks who designed blitzkrieg uh, tactics on the German high staff apparently uh, came up with that from studying my hero General Sherman and his march through the sea in fact our civil war probably where we went from Napoleonic to real uh, modern warfare And yet,
1: the bottom line is every war is different in its every own war way.
0: Is and one of the one of the problems that we have is we're always training to fight the previous war. Um, we
1: we certainly learned that in Desert Shield and Desert Storm.
0: Yeah. Well, you know everything. Well, I, I can't say that we. You know we. Uh, When I started in the Army ROTC in 1978, there was a lot of focus on, you know, patrolling and uh, small unit tactics and things that were, you know, uh, Vietnam specific, uh, you know. But when, uh, but eventually, uh, by the time we got the Git were at the helm, uh, we were uh, basically doing what we call the airline battle and we were we were geared up for force on force uh, as the sl- uh, slim pickings would say toe to toe with the Ruskies in nuclear combat but uh, thankfully it never came to that but just when we were at the top of our game uh, Saddam wanted to try force on force in the desert with us and, uh, didn't work out too well for
1: him uh, you know it's, it's a wonder uh with the number of coats of paint that our APCs and our tanks had on them that a, a bullet could even stick <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: they were they were yeah. our, our armor was armed with paint. And you know exactly what I mean.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I spent a fair amount of time standing with uh, getting ready for to go over there if uh... well, you
1: will. Well, you know, that that's one thing about our military. It's flexible and we do what we have to do. And we certainly we certainly did that Going into Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And, Phil, you wouldn't believe it, but guess what we're up against? The end of the show.
0: Well, we'll just have to uh, pick up again next week.
1: Sounds like a plan. And I do appreciate it. We will talk to you between now and next week, but we'll definitely be talking to you about remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm on America's Web Radio. Have a good weekend, Phil. Take care. Right,
0: bye-bye. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com.
1: Thank you for listening.